Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Welcome, Brad. Welcome, Jeremy. And welcome, Jackie Cooper. Boom. Boom. We are super excited. We're here in beautiful Marysvale in Victoria. We're here for the Stormwater Victoria 2019 conference. And the keynote speaker was none other than Jackie Cooper. Jackie, welcome to our little podcast. Oh, look, it's not little. Um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Um, no, look, I'm really excited to to be able to come and chat with you guys. You, you have more energy than me. So. Oh, I'm not sure about I that. don't think so. After, we'll see. We'll after see. listening to your uh, heroic story and, and, and me being a Kiwi, um, I, I didn't really know of you. I've lived in Australia for a long time, but... I was just blown away by your story and the opportunity to have a bit of a chat today. Uh, it's just really yeah. exciting. Look, I knew part, part – obviously I've seen – for people who actually don't know who Jackie yeah, Cooper yeah. is, and, and Jeremy was a little bit in the dark, but I'll, I'll try and rattle off some very quick statistics And because Jackie, let's face is a big deal. She's an <laughs> undisputed big deal. So she's – and I've got it here in her little bio here, which I've got from the Mr. Dr. Google, the undisputed – the greatest aerial skier of all time. So Jackie hurdles down these giant ski slopes, hits a ramp, and flies up in the air. At four a, and a half stories. Four and a yeah, half stories. Somewhere between twenty-two and twenty-six meters. And then it's not just just going up and coming down. It's going up and doing all these weird, wonderful tricks and and uh, unbelievable acrobatics. And then somehow lands. And then she's done that at five Olympics. So am I right in saying it's the, you're the only Australian that's ever done five summer or winter Olympics? I was the first. The so, first, oh, okay. Yeah, so since I um, was selected to five Olympics, was at the time was amazing because, you know, no one had done that. And you're like, wow, we've been sending Olympic teams away for years and it's taken this long for a woman to have that amount of longevity to make it to five. So I was the first and then came along Natalie Cook two years later in London. She became the first uh, summer Olympian, but the second summer or winter. She's a uh, beach volleyballer. And then Lydia Lustler, who's also from my sport, she became a five-time Olympian wow. last year in the Pyeongchang uh, Winter Olympics. But it's an incredible feat of in- longevity and endurance and perseverance because it's not just – you're not just – Let's, you're not doing curling or long balls or, I'm or not doing ping, ping, <laughs> pong, ping pong. Yeah, ping pong. <laughs> maybe you should have, because it would have been a lot safer. Let's face it. And you, I think you had a line last night: is that you're basically risking life and limb and, and basically risking death and paraplegia yeah. every 80, time you do a jump. Was it eighty percent of the time? 
Well, what was the stat? So I had a look back at all of my statistics, and so you would put down how many jumps you landed each day. And when you get to the point where you're doing triple twisting, triple somersaults, <laughs> my goodness, and you and you throw in an alpine environment which is windy, it yeah. says blizzards, it's changing, swirling all of the time. Most days you'd land twenty percent of your jumps, so there's an eighty percent. <laughs> Of the rest of the day, you're either whacking your head on the ground like concussion or risking your limb. But there's, there is every day that you go out there as an aerial skier, there's a chance of paraplegia or death. My goodness. And, you know, if you actually thought about that, I think you'd pull the doona cover up over your head <laughs> and you'd be ordering room service from the hotel and you wouldn't go out. When you put your ski suit on, you sort of dismiss and ignore the possibilities and you just get on with your job. But hang on, even in the absence of a uh, one-piece uh, skin suit, you're, you're a bit different though, Jackie, aren't you? Like, and, and the story that you told was amazing, well, honestly. C- can we can we just go back briefly yeah. to that story? I mean, um, I, mean I want to hear it again, but um, <laughs> but the, the, the story of, of 15 minutes that you got every day yeah. just to go down and drag your sisters down, you do their homework, just for 15 minutes on a, on a Yeah, take trampoline. us back. Jackie Cooper is a young teenager bouncing on the trampoline. Look, I was a kid fascinated with acrobatics. I wasn't <laughs> great, but there was something in me that made me want to do it every day. It was like scratching an itch. And um, my sisters sort of knew this about me. So, they, you know, they weren't athletic. They didn't quite understand why I needed to do this stuff, but they were also okay with it too. So every single day after school we would bypass, take – you know, sort of go in the wrong direction on the way home from school just so we could pass a place that had Olympic-sized trampolines. And that was that was a really big deal back then because most trampolines, they were at, you know, motels and caravan parks. There was a few kids with a couple of ordinary trampolines in a yard, but an Olympic-sized trampoline just for ordinary people to get on. Like, I thought, this is just unbelievable. So, yeah, I went every day and I'd go even go on weekends and all of the school holidays. And and uh, one day after doing the same thing for five years, um, I met a man at the trampoline. dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually told this story to a school assembly the other day and my daughter heard the story for the first time. She's six and she goes, but hang on a minute, you keep telling me never to talk to strangers. <laughs> and she goes, and you brought one home. So I've sort of had to like undo a little bit, you know. But yeah, so this is 1989, you know, and oh. so a gentleman told me he thought based on what he was looking at on a trampoline that I'd be great in a sport that I knew nothing about. But when he told me that the sport was basically what I was doing on a trampoline, I could do it on snow, like multiple tripled somersaults on snow. I was I was actually in love at that point because it just sounded so unbelievable, so unreal. It was something that I needed to explore and try. And he said that he was inspired that day from talking to me because he said the language you use, your you know, even your body language, the way you spoke, there was so much energy and passion and drive. And he said, you know, you went there every day. He said, um, this is, this is a quality of champions. You know, no one was making you do it. Um, no one was taking you there. You did it by yourself. And he said, um, you know, the whole thing about self-starters. So he wrote up a plan for me to be in the sport, but also a world champion within the 10 years of when we met. And so 10 years later, the man from the trampoline was with me when I won the world championships. <laughs> he, he does have a name, does he? He's like the man from the trampoline. <laughs> his, name, his name's Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. 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 No, but can I tell you, this man, like he's unbelievable. He is this visionary guy. He he found before me was the champion was Kirsty Marshall. Yeah. So myself, Kirsty. Then he saw Elisa Camplin, who was Olympic champion in 2002, on a trampoline at the Melbourne Showgrounds. 
He Jake. must go around and just. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, but what do you do for your research, buddy? <laughs> I know. You know what? Though the way he recruited them, like he'd be in jail now. Yeah. Like, they, I mean, they, they don't even do that now. Like, apparently, there's all these processes oh, on no how you doubt. can even talk to female athletes and everything. And Jeff today, he's actually the CEO of the Olympic Winter Institute. So oh, wow! Now he is a big deal. He is like, a big deal. He, he is a big deal. All of the um, athletes. <laughs> Athletes that you see on show over at any Winter Olympic Games, like that's his squad. He's responsible and for all of basically well, how win- they got recruited. Winter and summer? No, just winter. Just winter. Yeah. Cool. Like he's an amazing man. He's actually been given awards by the IOC by his oh, contribution. Cool. But, and after, shortly after meeting or seeing you jumping up and down on trampoline, he actually went home and you mentioned how he typed this 10-page plan. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. Can you talk us through this? At the time, he had already had a female athlete from Australia, Kirstie Marshall, so he had an idea on progression and and how I'd be able to move through the years, being able to get to the point where I would be a world leader. And so, yeah, he said that, um, you know, you see on sometimes movies where people get inspired and they write their books and it's just going really, really fast. <laughs> and you think about the typewriter back then. So he said he went home and he was all in a bit of a flap and he, you know, he started typing up, well, year once you could do this. But, you know, he didn't really know that I was a bit of a dud on the skis because I'd forgotten <laughs> to tell him that, you know, we weren't a skiing family. So that had to change when we met. But he did. I think when people set goals, they think it needs to be elaborate and it needs to be over the top. But really, he just wrote down um, some stepping stones for 10 years and milestones and measures and plans on where he think, thought that I could take this. And by looking at the plan every day, it reminded me of why I was doing it, how I was doing it, to stay on my path. And he called the 10 pieces of paper like the Melway's roadmap. That <laughs> I would need to keep looking at it to make sure that I'd arrive at the destination of being the best in the world. That, so. That's what really struck home well, with, with me last night. You, you look at it every day. Um, you know, Brad's a, um, uh, an established triathlete. Uh, I rode for many years at, uh, at the highest level in, in New Zealand. And that's just one of those things that you, you I just really resonated with me. Look at that. Carry them with you. Do you still have them today? My mum has them. (laughs) We've got this thing, my mum and I, it was a deal. It was almost like, you know, if you're in a relationship or your marriage and then when you you get divorced, anything that was accumulated before the marriage. So she said anything that was won or gained while I lived with her, she gets to keep. So my mother has three world titles at her house. She's got all of this stuff. Like, you know, I met my husband, now husband in 2002. So he's got post-2002. <laughs> and my mum's got pre, so she had a pretty good era there. My mum, but she has the pieces of paper. She must have a great winter wardrobe. Yeah. I, mean, I think it might be like those guys that are dumb and dumber with the with the fancy threads and the, uh, the, the oh, ski yeah. slopes. My mum, my mum loves parading. So yeah. any, any chance for her to get on her Australian, you know, flying kangaroos, Jackie Cooper aerial skiing, whatever, and do a couple laps around the Mount Buller Village? Like that's her. She's on show. But the, oh, getting back to that plan, so well, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned how you went back. You, there's ten pages, but you went straight to t- page 10. And I remember there was two words that stood out for you. What were those two words? Yes. Yeah, so. And, and, sorry. And this is the night after you first met Jeff at the trampoline. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So he, <laughs> he wanted to come on. It was May. I mean, and the ski season's around the corner, right? So he, if he was going to recruit and sign up and get someone ready for the winter, you couldn't waste any time. Yeah. So yeah. So he went home, he typed it up. He came to meet my mum and dad, you know, and myself again. And yeah, basically explained if she gets in this program, this is where 
I know it can go. And me being 16 and not overly excited about nine years of hard work, I had a look <laughs> at the 10th year wanting to see what this man thought that I could achieve in this non-traditional sport I knew nothing about. And there was a whole lot of stuff on the back page I didn't understand. I couldn't even – I didn't even get it. But I saw the two words, world champion, and even if you're five, everyone knows what a <laughs> world number one is. Even if you're from another country, you don't follow sport, it's not even your main, your main language, world champion – Everyone knows what that is and straight away it was almost like this is it for me. And so I couldn't wait to get started. And at that point he was so sure on his vision that I never, ever once doubted what he thought that I could do. Wow. Well, that's really amazing. I mean, he, he'd seen you, Jeff had seen you, what, how many times on a tramp? Do you know? I, no, just the day. Just, just, just one. Uh, just yeah. one day. I mean, that's that in itself well, well, is What sort of tricks were you doing? Like? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing much. The thing that he said was as he got closer to the trampoline, he didn't actually think that I was that great at all. But he said that what got him to spend more time and talk to me more was the way I spoke. And so he thought, because, do you know what, to, be, to absolutely be honest, like if I took 100 people into an aerial skiing camp, I could get everyone to learn how to somersault. Like you just teach how to people, you can teach them, but they won't love it. So when I told him I went there every day and I loved it and I loved it and I loved it, and he likes, well, her acrobatic skill set isn't actually that good, but she loves it that much that she'll do it more than anybody else. So he thought in recruitment that that was a quality that was more important than being uh, an elite-level gymnast, highly trained, that really did have a great skill set, you know, that I actually loved it. And I think those things are really important when you recruit mm. outside of sport, you know. Yeah. Well, that's – yeah, it's interesting you say and, and, and I guess trying to tie uh, this amazing story into to Brad and what we're trying to achieve – We've set some pretty full-on goals for what Ocean Protect's trying to achieve in Australia. Brad and I are actually raising awareness for Lebongan Island in, uh, in Bali at the end of this year, December the 12th. We're doing a swim-run event where uh, you use a half marathon and a 3K ocean swim. The, the, the funny thing is Brad is a, um, you know Australian champion triathlete. I'm not. Our crazy lofty, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to basically stop plastic from flying into Australian waterways. Simple as that. So we want to stop anything bigger than five millimetres going into any Australian waterway or ocean by 2040. And you look at that and go, that is absolutely crazy. Yeah, we need we're, billions we're, of we're, we're, we're crazy. There's a stupid goal. We're never going to do it. But that was sort of the, the I guess, the theme, the message I took out of your story is it's not really how much, you know, expertise or experience or, or, or talent you have. Because to be honest, me and Jerry, we're not that smart. We're not that talented. <laughs> yourself. But what we do have is a huge amount of passion and we love what we do. Um, and so th- that was the sort of the message that I took home is that really doesn't matter sort of what your, your what your sort of talents or abilities are. But if you've got a, if you've got a he- big hero audacious goal, no matter how crazy it might seem, if you, if you have a passion for it, you can you, succeed. You, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, look, 100%. And not everyone will agree with you. They think that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. No. No, but it's so, true though. You get yeah. so many people thinking, oh my gosh, how's that going to work? You know, the day after that, the man found me on the trampoline, I went back and told everyone at the school that I went to <laughs> that I'm going to be a world champion. You know what they said? Oh my God, Cooper's such a wanker. <laughs> like, they seriously, and you know, I didn't even mind telling them. I'm like, I don't even care. So I had these girls telling me I was this, I was that. And I was so sure I was going to be a world champion that I actually wrote it in a girl's homework diary, May 29th. 1989 I wrote it there and I signed it 
So I finished, obviously, school a couple of years later and then we had a 10-year high school reunion. So I'd won oh. a couple of world titles. <laughs> she, Her name's Cassie Wavy. She actually, <laughs> she actually took that piece of paper. She kept that homework diary. She pulled it out. She framed it and she gave it back to me. Oh, that wow. is and cool. And that is better than mum's 10 pieces of paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that one because it tells people it's okay to have a big goal and yeah. it's even more okay to tell people you have it. Yeah. You know, so many people are afraid to tell them about their big, yeah. you know, audacious goal and they want to try and do this. Okay, it might seem lofty out there, but the more people that know about a goal that I you know. have, there's probably people that are going to get on board and go, you know what, that is so cool. Yeah. I want to help you, you know. Yeah. And so Cassie Wavish, I mean, she must have believed in me somewhere to hang on to the diary <laughs> yeah. and, I don't know, put it somewhere and pull it out at a high school reunion. It was pretty awesome. You know, you're, you're right. And, um, look, even people within our own industry – uh, are doubting what we can do. Um, and as Brad said, we're here at this stormwater conference. I bet you know, half of those people in there think that we're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> half. <laughs> well, yeah, just <laughs> half. But, but, but we are trying to do something. This has all come from California in 2009 went, do you know what? We're going to stop pollution going into our oceans. And they set a plan by 2030 to achieve that. They are on track to do that. Now that's really inspiring. And that's when Brad and I, and Ocean Protect, well, it was only a few months ago, mm. we were like, well, bugger it. If Americans can, we can get it? their shit together. Exactly. And state of California where yeah. there's ego and all sorts of things involved, like, <laughs> come on, Australia. Yeah, like, totally. Exactly. Exactly. And this exactly. is the whole point. I mean, look, we've only just met, but did you know about how pollution got out to the ocean? Yeah, look, um, I'm a big animal lover and my six-year-old actually is my, – my grandmother actually was the founder of the Blue Cross in Australia. So, oh. yeah, we've got animals. And actually, to be honest, if the man hadn't found me on the trampoline that day, I would have been a vet. Wow. Yeah, so I would have been a vet probably with a trampoline in the backyard. Bouncing <laughs> you know, animals. Yeah, we are a um, big animal-loving family and my kids already are worried about our oceans. And last year my daughter, um, we, they had a couple of skirts. She was in prep last year they went to sea life they went to um, the beach and we talk all the time about the rubbish that's that winds up on the beach we go and do some um, cleanup days mm. and they're you know at, my twins are four and she's six you know and if it matters to a six-year-old yeah. and it matters to a four-year-old how does that not matter to the adults yeah. like how are they letting that happen like my little girl is was crying when she heard she came home one day from this um, unit of inquiry talking about the world around us and they focused on the on the sea and she came home devastated because they saw a little video in the classroom about where a balloon ends up when you let them go in the yeah. in the sky and she'd done that at one of her parties when she was maybe two, not for many years. She was devastated to think that maybe, just maybe, she killed some of the fish. And so wow. my kids are aware, you know, we go down and we try and help. We would like to make just as much change as you guys, but we're only one. So we need parents, really, as the adults here, as the leaders, to make the change yeah. to show our children that for them when they're our age this will all be very different if yeah. you don't act now and that, 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 it's quite funny you say that because that young uh, Greta Thunberg mm. why is it that children are striking around the world to tell politicians this is not good enough do you, do, yeah. do you find that just odd I mean school children are going guys please please don't stuff up our lives and, but why yeah. are we not well, we're trying to protect these are children yeah it's yeah. Oh, I, think I think they're fulfilling a gap in the social sort of network. You know, why isn't more people – like they're, they're probably looking at adults 
similarly going, why aren't you guys advocating for change? What, what if, uh, but if you guys aren't, we will. And you know, kudos to kids. I know. Fantastic. They're, they're so good. My, my kid will see someone litter and she goes, he has no integrity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she, and she, and she, she says intemperity, but, but I know exactly what she's yeah, saying. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, she, yeah, he's, he's an idiot. So you, you know, so you do the beach cleanups and just going back to the question bef- before you met us, obviously just before this. How did you think all the pollution got out to the ocean? Well, exactly how people drop it on the drop it on the ground. It'll wind up wind up in the river systems, and it makes its way out to the ocean. I mean, I don't know if that's no, 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 that's, that's bang on. So, ocean. roughly eighty uh, percent of marine pollution comes from land based sources, and predominantly that's stormwater runoff. Essentially, every time it rains, it washes our cities clean, but that rain mobilises pollution, goes down the drains, goes into the creek, which goes into the river, and ultimately ends up into the ocean. And people just don't know. You know, people are unaware. So, like, we, we've been living and breeding this for a long time. It's just a simple message that we need to keep banging on about. We need to reduce the amount of, of um, plastic that we're using. We need to recycle. But we also need to appropriately protect our waterways. I mean, you, you get accidental litter. You can see trucks, you know, wind litter, rubbish bins overflowing. This is a problem that is going to continue to happen. If we stopped littering, you know, everywhere in Australia, we'd still need to protect our waterways. And this is a message we need to get out there. If you throw something on the ground, it's going to end up in the ocean. I mean, look at the, look at the research we've done or that's been done on uh, turtles in Moreton Bay. Yeah, yeah. About 30% of turtles that are found dead on the beaches of Moreton Bay, which is just downstream of where I live, uh, they've died as a direct result of plastic ingestion. Over 50% of every turtle in the world has got plastic in it. Yeah, it's scary. Like, you, 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 but you almost get d- disconnected from these uh, problems. Like, you rattle off numbers like the oh, 99% of seabirds have plastic in their belly and X percentage of uh, whales have popped. You know, we talked back to Daryl Blatchley, a guy from the Philippines, and he, he did an necropsy of a whale with 40 well, kilograms. Do you know what a necropsy is? While it's alive? Yeah, no, no, it was, it was I know. I didn't like, know what it was. I think it's like an autopsy, but autopsy on, on uh, marine animals. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. But basically, it's a good word though. Yeah. Right? It sounds like necropsy. Yeah, but look, he, he's he, he's done sixty-one of these uh, necropsies on uh, whales and dolphins, and found you know that well, seventy-five percent of them died from as a direct result of plastic ingestion. And this one whale that we were talking to him about had forty kilograms of plastic in his belly, and it was only a, a juvenile whale. Um, it's look, that's a bit scary, but I think what we, and, and I think a lot of, uh, environmental issues, um, can get a bit depressing, but a bit doom and gloom. And to be honest, what, you get a bit switched off from it as well. Like you just, there's only so much of it you can take, but this one, from my perspective is, is, is a, is a massive problem, but it's actually a readily available solution. We can actually solve this, you know, with, with increased awareness and education for kids and they're yeah. telling their parents, Hey, stop littering. Or well, that guy, that litter, he's got no in- integrity no, well, yeah. or whatever. He- in- integrity. <laughs> integrity. integrity. <laughs> and then, and then from our perspective, we go, well, that's, that's a key part of the solution, you know, education, awareness. That's the key reason why we do this podcast. We're not just talking to stormwater professionals about, you know, Oh, we've got to do better storm management. We're, we're getting out there in the big bad world, talking to the community and raising awareness and talking to mayors and senators and councils. Etc. Uh, and to be honest, we had a great time doing it well, as well. And, and the good news <laughs> is, uh, both Helen and Candy, our respective mums, uh, we've got a few more listeners than just our parents. So that's quite exciting. People love listening to us. One of the key things I took away from Jackie's talk, which was amazing, everyone was on the edge of their seats. Like I was, I was pretty, pretty stoked. Um, but it hasn't been all smooth sailing, has it? Really? Like you can rattle off all your victories and and medals and and World Cup championship titles, etc. And to be honest, you are a superstar. But it has has hardly been. Uh, a smooth ride, has it? Well, when you think about my career, I went in 104. 
39 World Cup events and I won, I won 24 or 25. So that's still, it's still a lot. But what happens when you're not winning? I went in a, in a mm. hundred and, 130, 140 events. And when you're not winning, you, you, you crashed out and you're either got a concussion or you've got some knee issue now. And I had, had 25 surgeries on my body. Oh my goodness. So, but you know what though? That was just my sport. So I was okay with what I copped knowing that I was in a sport where there was a reality of getting injured and I loved what I did so much that I actually didn't care what came in front of me. Really? But these, yeah. these injuries are significant. Massive, like, like yeah. dislocated hip, fractured pelvis, knee reconstruction, elbow reconstruction, shoulder reconstruction. And, you know, some of the times I just put – well, I had my leg put back in so I could take a jump or I taped my elbow, which had no ligament holding the bottom part of the arm to the upper arm. You know, I had to have it strapped for four months just so I could continue. But at the time, you just do the do. You just keep doing what you do and you sort of get a mindset where you'll just deal with it later. So that means deal with the pain later, deal with the rehab later, and you just get on with it. And I think that if you walk through life thinking that everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns, <laughs> You know, then I think you're setting yourself up for a, a bit of a hard road. You've got to know that it's going to be there, but you've also got to give yourself the tools to be able to deal with setback, deal with some hardships and, you know, build a resilient self. And, and when you put yourself out there, haters are going to hate. You know, we, we've experienced a bit of that with a bit of with our podcasts and people. We, we, when you put yourself, put, put yourself out there, you know, we, we, we've talked about it before. Um, people always have opinions, but opinions are like songs. Everyone's got one, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, can, can can you take us through the, the major injury where you were? Um, it, like the dislocation yeah. of the hip. Yeah. Sorry, I, just, I don't know if you want to relive that. When I was oh, no, uh, no. Yeah. like that was that was I I, me, I that, wasn't aware of that. What like I knew you had a few setbacks. That was and, crazy. Yeah, can you t- walk us I, through that one? I think the reason why no one ended up knowing about that injury was because I actually took my Olympic qualifying jumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they thought, was she is she injured? No, she mustn't be. So it sort of got didn't get talked about too much. And at the time, I was actually really happy about that because. You know, media love negative stories. They just love it. And for a while there, every time I showed up in the newspaper, it was because something was falling off, you know. And instead of reporting about the wins that I was having, they loved talking about all of the injuries that this old girl was getting. So, look, I was happy that it didn't get reported on. But, yeah, I was at a um, a test. It was like it was a world championship. It's the year before the Olympic Games. And how you qualify for the Olympics is based on fist points. And so the more fist points you have, it puts you higher in the ranking where you get like automatic selection to the Olympics. So for me, I wanted to qualify so I could go to Vancouver becoming Australia's first ever female five-time Olympian. And that was a commitment I made to myself. I'm like, I'm going to do it. Yep, yep, yep. And I can do it today at the World Championships and you get a bronze medal. I think the minimum would be 800 points. Like that's already qualifies you. But during this, the practice for the event, you know, things started going crazy. The conditions on the jump site changed. Um, it was springtime. They needed to, you know, put some pesticide down, make it faster. My, you know, I didn't jump well. I should have not jumped, I guess, mm. in that, taking that jump, but I went off the jump too fast. I was like, oh my gosh, to look at the video now, I look like a cat out the window. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Can you explain that? Yeah, what so, speeds you usually come down at? Yeah. And- so 
you know, we've got radar guns. So the, the radar <laughs> like guns. police radar exactly, guns. Exactly. Yeah. They're so fun. You take them out. Like <laughs> athletes are pretty boring people. But, um, you know, we used to take these radar guns out at night and, and sh- shine them at cars and they thought they were getting pulled over by cops. <laughs> like, you know, plain rapper cops like undercover. It's like, oh, ma'am, did you know that you were speeding? So, so funny. Or we would take them and get, take them out skiing and see if we could hit 200K, you know, skiing towards the damn thing. So, look, sometimes <laughs> I know, I know. That's just spare time. But anyway. <laughs> This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <laughs> the radar guns are important because it lets people know how fast you're going mm. off a jump. So you, you need to go off within a, a sweet spot of about two kilometers either way. So, you know, I went off the jump. The speed trap wasn't working, so relying on a gun. My coach didn't think the gun was working properly because it was showing at 80K an hour. But I basically went off the jump, you know, way too fast giving me no chance at even coming close to my feet. Oh, so you geez. start thinking about an, a survival plan. So do you <laughs> – you're so high in the air, do you tuck it over for a fourth somersault or do you just keep flipping and twisting to the point where you're stretching and you land somewhere on the back of your shoulders? So I sort of went for that option, got really long. And um, no, but you know what's amazing? All this happens really quickly, but oh. you still have enough time to make decisions. Yeah. And um, But still on impact, it, it was just too big and too high and too out of control that the um, – the femur sort of dislocated out the back, so through the backside, and um, yeah, just on sheer force, so pushed out the back. So it was oh. called a, um, I think it's a posterior um, dislocation. What, what you Do can't you- see is Jeremy squirming. <laughs> like oh, look, I'm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you try and stick a needle on me, I pretty much faint. So. You, sound, you sound like my husband. So, and so, you, well, you described it like you like like a Barbie doll, yeah, like with the, the, the leg, like because you know you didn't did it didn't come out your skin though. No, no, oh, no, that no. I can handle that. No, <laughs> that seriously. If that they were really worried because inside you've got your femoral artery and it's one of the it's one of the major ones. So if there was any bone and had that broken and you sever that, you, you're dead in four minutes. Oh, oh so, wow. Anyway, look, we didn't know that there was fractured pelvis and other things going on. It was dislocated. There was people, you know, sorting my leg back out so I could take my jumps, but. To cut a long story short, I took my qualifying jumps 15 minutes after my leg had dislocated. Unbelievable. So, so you put it back in. 
So, yeah, so, yeah. How did that work? You're like, hey, just put me hip back in. So there's people that come over straight away and start helping, but normally what they want to do is just clear the area so they can keep the training going. Oh, is that why they put up the white sheet? Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, You're the horse getting put down. Yeah, they, they try to, yeah. Well, people don't want to see major accidents. Oh, yeah. They stop everything. They sort of clear the area. Um, and they keep saying live TV will happen in six minutes. So they know that they're under pressure to get – get whatever it's done, oh sorted, goodness. get everyone out. And, you know, they thought I was a scratch at the time because obviously my leg's not in. They, <laughs> they, they have to get it to a point where they feel like it's stable. And so our physio was like, you know, I think it's stable enough. And But, the you know, the Japanese officials, I mean, the actual the International Ski Federation have some pretty serious rules around letting injured competitors um, compete again. But the only thing that I was telling them is that their rules stick when it's a head injury and I didn't have a head injury. So I'm like, you have to let me compete. Like my oh. head's fine. Ask me what day it is, where, what my room number is, where oh I am. Oh my goodness. So I was really quite determined to make sure that I wasn't going to let a, I guess, an unstable hip get me out of my commitment to qualifying for Vancouver. So anyway, I took my jumps and yeah, um, landed one basically selection based on that result and then I had to come back and have surgery and then I was sitting in a locked mechanism onto my hip for for close to 90 days. So like literally protruding in, like like, you've got spinal injuries and head injuries, so so drill it into you. Yeah, they they, – what they wanted to do, and I didn't quite understand at the time, so my body scars really well, has a lot of scar tissue, and they knew that from past injuries with my knee injury. So to make the hip, the ball stay into the socket, if you stayed still and didn't open up the joint, scar tissue would form in and around the joint, making that quite a secure, um, yeah, like <laughs> ball and socket falling from the height of a four-storey building. And so, But you'd have to make sure that you didn't move or open up the joints. So toilet wise, you just <laughs> oh yeah. We had to have occupational the- therapists come oh, in and redo goodness. the house for the months that I was in a wheelchair. You know, at the time, you don't really think about any of these things, but you know, we were like we had polished floorboards downstairs, we had a spare room downstairs with with wide enough doors to get wheelchairs in. But they send a team of people in to make the house safe enough for you to be able to do what you need to do for the many months of rehabilitation. If they don't think it's safe, they'll send you off to a rehabilitation hospital. Yeah. So and if they can't modify that. the house, then you have to go elsewhere. So it was it was really really big. And so for the three months, I was at home and I visualized and I used the time to really. It was almost. Like like a meditative state. So I did that for many months. And then the actual process of getting out of the wheelchair again was tough because I had to learn how to walk again. And, um, you know. Wait, wait, so learn, like literally you, 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 what, your body's forgotten how to walk or? No, well. You, you or your mind because you haven't done it for so long. No, my gait had changed because Goodness. the hip was lifted because it was so tight and it was all sort of bound up. I couldn't I didn't have enough length in some of the muscles at the front anymore to be able to have a full walk oh, and a goodness. full step through. So I ended up sort of almost walking on a curve. Yeah, my husband's like, you look like a crab, you go a bit sideways. <laughs> so yeah, you have to learn how to walk again. And I'd be strapped up with ropes. Now they've got special machines to help you mm. with walking post ACL when they have them at the footballs. But um I did a lot of training down at VIS and Mick Malthouse, who was the coach at the time mm. for Collingwood, we had shared facilities. He would strap me up along with my um coach, um strength and conditioning coach Harry in with ropes on a treadmill to slowly get my patterning wow. and my walking going and at the Brighton Rehab Centre and it was a long road back and only just when I got back 
to full training again. Then I had emergency knee surgery in Zurich. Oh, goodness. So it was three operations on um, two body parts in the final months before my fifth attempt at the Olympics. Wow. D- d- just to clarify, didn't you, after you've got out of the wheelchair, you went, didn't you go and compete and then you did the same thing and had to go back into the wheelchair? No, no, it? that just it just didn't. The first operation, um, so uh, after the first uh, six weeks, yeah, yeah. So um, they said, "Oh, it's, uh, let's give it a go. It should be fine by now." And you we took the brace off, and it actually. Um, oh, that's right. You were knocked, lying there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lo- yeah, and I did a jolt. jolt and actually, and, I yeah, could, yeah, 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 yeah. I could, had, yeah. So, I could feel it bust through. So basically, for the listeners, so Jackie's spent six weeks meditating in this wheelchair. You know, just getting the scar tissue to form. Getting the scar tissue, and then they take it off. She's lying down and basically just has a spasm. Yeah. And and puts it out and then has to spend a whole another sixty well, six weeks. Six, six weeks. weeks. Yeah. But I had to go back into surgery <sighs> and they sort of tighten up the capsule again. Oh, goodness. So I had to go back into surgery <laughs> and um, go back to basically start again. Um, but I mean, you, I guess I knew what was coming. I knew what yeah. the first six was like, six weeks was like. And, so and the clock's ticking with the Olympics coming yeah, up. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah you, after your second round of six weeks, so three months uh, first uh, after your first surgery. It's now midwinter Australia. Yeah, so and you've got how many months to Vancouver Olympics? Well, there was probably five. Five months. Five. So you're looking. Look, you're trying to walk again, recognizing that in five months' time you'll be competing on the world stage at the Winter Olympics. In one of the, the the sports, which is just absolute daredevil, you're flying four and a half stories in the air and trying to do all these crazy turns and twists and then land on that body. <laughs> do, do, do you know what, though? At the time, like, you know, some of the athletes in my sport, like their daily goal was – my daily goal is to do two triple somersaults today in training, land them both. My goal was just to walk 100 metres straight. Oh, my God. Goodness. Like my goal today is to balance on my left leg in, you know, in like an aeroplane position, holding weights on either side, balancing. My, that's my goal, you know. So your goals have to change. I couldn't really think too far ahead. I just had to think about right then and right now. Yeah, obviously I was visualising for Vancouver, which kept my mind sharp mm. on the uh, technical aspects and the skill level that I would need, but that wouldn't actually help me that yeah. day in rehab. I had to think about I'm going to walk today. I'm going to try and walk for 100 metres in a straight line. Wow. And look, fast forward to the Olympics. So the, the Vancouver Olympics rolls rolls into town. The You're actually awarded the, the, the privilege of being the flag bearer, am I right? But you actually couldn't make it. Yeah, so they have a conversation with you beforehand because um, – But yeah, they do. Jackie, can you walk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, they said, look, you know, you're obviously a five-time Olympian. would love to honour your career. Would you like to be the flag bearer? And, you know, it, you're, you're torn. You'd love to be the flag bearer, but no that you just won't make it in time. So it's either go to the Olympics early and be underprepared, but you get to be the flag bearer or stay and continue to prepare and prepare yourself for the event that you've been training 20 years for. So I didn't train 20 years to carry a flag. So, I mean, but still it was a hard choice, even though it's an obvious choice, it was still really hard. Um, But I arrived really late in the Olympic program. I mean, um, but a lot of athletes do that too. Yeah, a lot of athletes do it now, don't they? Yeah, they they do. They try to spend less time around all the hype. Yeah. Um, Even at the last Olympic Games, I mean, it's always a personal choice whether or not you fly in early and you do the opening ceremony and do all that rah-rah. But, yeah, I came in really late. I was really underprepared. I had no momentum. And that (laughs) you you need something Mm. going into a major like that. So what, what was yours? 
Mine was my experience. Yeah, yeah. So that was the only thing I had. Oh, and the self-belief, obviously. I mean, nobody else really thought I could do anything. They thought I was pulling a rabbit out of something, but I'm like, you know, I've got it firmly by two years. <laughs> and I was ready to pull the rabbit out of a hat. In fact, someone from the crowd gave me one in Vancouver as a good <laughs> So recognising you're a superstar, but that obviously the, the people at home and the people in the crowd know that you've had a you know, tumultuous you know, previous eleven months, they must be thinking, "Oh, it's nice of Jackie to come up and make, turn up, you know, make up the numbers." But she's got no chance, surely. I think the people there in the crowd that night, because they are diehards, they go to all the Olympics, they know, <laughs> who, and the people that are actually doing the commentary, they really give a good backstory for the yeah. people that are there while you're training. And I think everyone was interested to see how the story would end yeah. for me. After 20 years, they'd been to a lot of different Olympics, they'd seen, you know, this rabbit getting given to me. I mean, there's a lot of people there that still held hope. Yeah. But as the training went on that night, the hope was dying for everyone thinking that this old girl could actually do anything. <laughs> so, yeah, let's let's run through the, through the night because the, the story just gets crazier from here. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about uh, the night and obviously your, your, your jumps and what happened? Yeah, so at a World Championship, um, or Olympic Games, you get about an hour of training, which isn't much. And during that hour of training, every athlete that's in the semi-final or the final, you have to showcase the jumps that you're going to compete and you have to do them well. So that's almost like you're almost not competing, but yeah, you have to prove to the judges that you're going to do some yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, well, they stuff. don't want any Hail Marys, you know. They don't want some <laughs> bloody person coming out and doing something crazy because they've a whole lot of adrenaline thinking, you know, if I just add a flip and a twist right now, I could potentially win. They want to make sure that the sport stays safe and it looks good on television and that everyone knows what they're doing and everyone's skilled enough and then there's no problems. Yeah. So you're doing yeah. your training jumps, you're working out your speeds and everything. On that night in Vancouver, it was so foggy. I mean, I couldn't even see the jump. The people in the crowd couldn't even see the athletes. It was just like pea soup. It was so bad. And so you're waiting for a breath of wind just to move the fog out. And at 70k an hour coming into a jump that you can't see, you don't even get a visual chance to focus on the top part of the jump is where you're looking. It comes at you so quickly. It's almost like you've got a blindfold on. So during the practice, I did three attempts at the triple somersault on the first one. I landed on my head and my mum remembers watching the training because they were beaming it back to Australia and Eddie McGuire's like, oh, that's it, everyone in Australia, that's Jackie Cooper on her head, she better get it together. And my mum was like, oh, my gosh, she has stomachache straight away. So the first one on my head, the next two were incomplete, which meant that I put my hand up to do a triple twisting triple but I only did one twist out of the three. So oh. do, you, do you notify people what your intention is to do? <laughs> yeah, well, they know the progression on where you're working up to. Yeah, okay. So at that point, everyone was in a tailspin about what I should do and shouldn't do, and um, I look like a train wreck, really, and nobody believed that I could actually pull off these two jumps. And it was suggested that I step down back onto the double, call it a career and go quietly because the IOC are involved, the AOC are involved, Vancouver, the organising committee, there's the sport. There's a lot of people hoping that one of the greats doesn't go up in flames, you know, on the television. And, you know, any other athlete... I would have said too, you shouldn't be doing this because you have no business. <laughs> so you would have told, yeah, okay. yeah you would have told yourself, hey, yeah, I would have told down. myself, but me myself know that somewhere in here I had 20 years of experience. I'd jumped in fog before, I've done it before, I've been under pressure before. I just knew. And the one thing that I had to do was just turn my brain off. I had to forget about where I was, who was watching me, the fact that it was really bad weather. And having the ability to turn your brain off and just actually go blank and letting yourself do the do. That's hard to do, but I was able to do it because of the mental training that I'd done. So you got two jumps. You got two jumps that really count. 
Yeah. So you, you, you buggered the first three. Eddie <laughs> Maguire's off the Christmas card. <laughs> yeah. um, he always has been. I see so you're saying, yeah, hey, Jackie, right. just, just do a few moguls and jump down and we'll, we'll celebrate your success. But you go, no, nah, I'm going to go for the, the yeah. glory. The base. Yeah. Well, you know, I for me it was personal. I wanted to finish with jumps that I was the first to ever do on snow. I mean, I became the first woman ever to do the highest acrobatic skill in the world, triple twisting, triple. It's never been done in gymnastics or it's high diving or anything. Daughters, it does sound so <laughs> small, but if like, we saw it, it's insane it's what a, you're doing. It's, it's like uh, triple twisting, like triple twisting, triple somersault. Yeah. So for me, it was about. I wanted to. Um, <laughs> I think Dizzy does to- say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to end my story, be the final, write the final chapter, not have people step in and say you can't. I mean, that would be a terrible way to end a career that you spent 20, on a craft that you spent 20 years trying to master. So, no, I was I was determined that I could do it. So, yeah, turning the brain off actually really worked. So what happened? So, yeah, yeah, you got two jumps to go. So two jumps to go. One was a triple twisting, triple somersault. One was a double twisting, triple somersault. And even when I was standing up there, I wasn't even sure. You know, you're never sure on how it's going to go. I went numb, to be honest, and went off the jump and did both of my multiple twisting triple somersaults and landed. Nailed it. Yeah. The landing was was just unbelievable. Like it was barely like I bent my knees. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. So you you did your best jump of your career on your final jump. Would that be fair to say? The, um, there was a lot of technical flaws in the jump, like okay. the body was a little bit bent. I, so. I, I, didn't, want to, I didn't want to say anything, but yeah, uh, yeah look. <laughs> body was a little bit out of shape. You, know, you, you say you've seen better, you know. <laughs> so, no, it actually wasn't my best technique, but the actual performance itself was it was my greatest. It's incredible, watch, incredible to watch the whole backstory and the jump to finish it. It's just like. Wow, and yeah. and and the, the the judges agreed really like they they went Jackie like apart from the a few points deduction, deductions maybe but you nearly you, got you landed and you're like you're in the lead yeah I was in so when I landed I was in the lead and yeah. everyone was going nuts thinking oh my god I just can't believe she did this <laughs> and that guy's shaking his rabbit out of her hat <laughs> yeah. yeah. you're putting your hip back in <laughs> yeah. so it was for the next few minutes it was quite unbelievable to think that here I was I was in one piece nothing had fallen off I'd landed my two jumps people aren't going to say Jackie Cooper crashed out again it was a real moment of um, victory for me but in a lot of areas so an emotional victory a physical one with my body and for me I really I felt like there was a whole lot of closure there around 20 years of struggling to try and land a few jumps at the Olympics and and it was funny like I came the most unprepared ever mm. and I did my best like <laughs> what did that tell you just show up yeah, you know? yeah. Like, but yeah. look and look it hasn't been the end of your it might, might have been the sort of uh, um, end of your sporting career and, and that's after you re- after that event you retired yeah so I took some time thinking about I was hoping Mount Buller were going to host some World Cups that year okay um, and we talked about it a lot of having me finish at where I started oh, which would wow. have been really nice um, but they couldn't get it off the ground so it was later that year so about 10 months after the Olympics that I decided well if we can't get the retirement happening at Mount Buller it may yeah. as well have been my last jumps in Vancouver and what an incredible sporting career wow it is an incredible story but it wasn't it's you've actually taken you know so many qualities and skills that you've developed in your sporting career into some pretty incredible achievements in business as well can you just give it a idea of that i call um you know in sport it's really great you get to 
like a bag every day full of qualities and elements needed to be successful. And you don't realize at the time, like when you go out into, you know, an Olympic final, obviously you've got, you've got to pack your bag with confidence and self-belief and a plan and this and that and the other and resilience. And those things don't go away when you retire. So it changes a bit. You know, I took off my one piece ski suit in Vancouver, but everything that I needed to be successful for 20 years and become the greatest actually use in life now. So whether it's starting a small business, a gluten-free range, which is in supermarkets or an event company. Yeah, plug it. What's it called? Uh, food for me. It's a gluten-free frozen dose. Um, my daughter's got celiac disease. She was diagnosed at two. Where, 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 can, we, where can we buy it? So selected IGAs. Um, yeah, at the moment we're um, just changing some manufacturing. So uh, hopefully it'll be with a major one day soon. But it's out there. Um, I feel proud because I did tell my little girl one day I'm going to have this in a supermarket and it's just for you. Oh. And so for her. Boom. Lofty goal. Lofty and you just goal. busted your gut to get yeah, there and did from, it again. It went from an idea after she was diagnosed yeah. on a couch one day thinking surely um, there has to be something easier and nicer. And I went around the supermarkets, couldn't find it, realised there was a hole in the market, put some recipes together, took it to a um, commercial kitchen, took it to a manufacturer, took it to a retailer retailer and there you go so my little girl knows that yeah you can have an idea and you can see it you know in a supermarket and obviously you've got your events company as well yeah champion events is doing some work with um the mcg and going to do some work with the scg as well which is pretty great um i'm a company ambassador for latrobe financial and also mount buller so basically you're killing it books out you've got a couple of books you've got a killer book but it has to be said you you do a fantastic keynote speech has to be Uh, look that's what i love i mean i love connecting and communicating with people (laughs) well you certainly did that like when you said when you got up and said i'm going to speak for 50 minutes i was like yeah we'll see we'll see (laughs) wow just like that, 50 minutes was gone. And I was just hanging off my seat. <laughs> <laughs> if I tell my husband I'm going to talk for the next 50 minutes, he, he knows. Re- he reverses out of the driveway and goes somewhere else. He's like, like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. No, look, I, yeah, 50 minutes is a long time, but I think that um, everyone, you know, whether um, the people at the table, um, they don't think they've got a good story. I mean, I actually spoke to the guys at my table and everyone has a has a story. I think it's how you tell it. Mm. And so as long as you tell it with some humour, um, especially at an after-dinner keynote, I think that's really important. People yeah. have had a long day. Yeah. You want to be a little bit entertained, but you also want to learn a little bit more about the person in front of you. And so hopefully I hit all the high notes. Oh, and- yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and look, you've got an amazing story and you tell Tell it awesomely, it has to be said. So if anyone's out there looking for a keynote speaker, oh, yeah. I could not recommend uh, Jackie enough. That was fantastic. It really was. I just want to touch on something you said before in regards to the 20 years of your career setting you up for business. What I think has made me successful in business is rowing. I rowed at the, the highest level in New Zealand, New Zealand juniors. And without that in my life, I don't think I would have ever got into business the way I have. You know, you, you learned commitment, you know, dedication, you know, to do that, even though I only did that for eight years of my life and I, I wasn't an Olympian like you, I, I, I put my success or if I call myself success, successful down to rowing. And I encourage anyone or any children out there, get into a sport, whether it's by yourself, whether it's a team sport, it gives you those tools. Just to be successful. Mm. I mean, you'd be oh, the same. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm just trying to think how we're going to land this jump as well. Like, uh, like, <laughs> like uh, to, to, to excuse the pun, like, so obviously uh, you've, we've talked briefly about some of our crazy uh, uh, lofty goals 
and obviously you're someone who's very um, aware of the importance of goals and, and planning appropriately. But if, if someone it doesn't have to be what the goals that we've got, the, the ocean protection goals, the, you know, whether it's a sporting goal or a business goal, well, like if, if you've got someone, if, if there's a listener out there with a big uh, crazy goal, what would you actually recommend for them? If they think it's big, I would just say is break it down to the point where it seems small. So if it's big, it'll be really hard for them to actually tackle and get their head around. Mm. And it might even be hard for them to actually start moving in the direction of achieving the goal. So try to make it small. So, and that's what Jeff did really well with me. So whilst being world champion was on page 10, I looked at page one Mm. when I was in year one and just look at those goals. And the same when you get injured and everything, it's like, what can I do today to actually get to that, but I reckon make a big goal seem small. And that's by getting a great support team. That's by breaking down what you need to do and just do what you need to do today, knowing that that's putting you further down the track to achieve your goal later on. But don't think about that. Just think about what you need to do today. Make it small. That's great advice. Well, one thing I do want to know, um, so we've we've managed to speak to a few people now. Um, well, no, none of them as good as me. No, no, yeah. it's, it's exactly what I was going to say. It's famous and it's amazing as you. But we did speak and had Ace Bucken, who's an Australian um, champion surfer on, and Brad and I and, and Ocean Protect, we've got this lofty goal. Um, we want to create an, an Ocean Protect board. Would you, would you, if, if, if we got a bo- ocean protect board, we're looking for ambassadors. If and when we could get that off the ground, would you consider being Oh one? my gosh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, cool. Boom. That's yeah. how we've landed it. Yes, honoured, honoured. Oh, great. We're pretty close. Well, all we're trying to do is go, look, we're going to try and make a difference around the world. And, you know, to do that, we need people that uh, have very high profiles. And um, obviously, yours is pretty bloody high. <laughs> so when we get off our ass and get that done, um, it's in the making. We'll certainly get in touch with you. Thank you. Um, before I wrap up, I just want to just go back to, you know, the problem. Yeah. This is one thing I'd love to be able to tell everybody out there. It's a little bit making the big goal smaller. I think that people don't um, make change and that they don't help your cause because they just seem like it's too big now. Yeah. There's too much problem that's how can I help the 20 kilos of plastic that was found in a whale, yeah. you know, in French Polynesia. Yeah. So they think that it's so big that they actually can't make change. That- but if they actually make it small and make it about themselves individually and all they're doing is making the smallest change, if everyone makes the smallest change, that's all you need to do. That's yeah, all we that, need to do. You're bang on. There's a good friend of ours, uh, Tim Silverwood, started something 10 years ago called Take Three for the Sea. And it's that simple. You go down to the beach, you take three pieces of rubbish and you put it in the bin. He has been so successful yeah. around the world and in Australia. I think they've picked up something like 10 million pieces of plastic yeah. or something like that with this simple messaging. So that's actually bloody great advice for yeah. us. How do we dumb it down and make it simple? Yeah, think think global but act local. Like, uh, and, and take Tim's message. You know, when you go to an area of pub, public open space, whether it be a, a beach or a park or, or a road or whatever, if you pick up three bits of rubbish and put them in the bin, you've made a difference. And I think if we, every time in, in all of our day-to-day activities, whether it be the food we eat or the packaging we, we choose to use or not use or whatever, our day-to-day activities have a significant impact to the world around us. And when we make a change, 
change, the world follows with us. And one thing we we sort of see day in day out is that when we're living in a line uh, in alignment to our own values, there seems to be the universe conspires to support us. So, for example, me and Jeremy have sort of put ourselves out there. Like I'm an engineer, Jeremy's a businessman. It's pretty unusual for those sort of so sort of two individual <laughs> types to go out and do a podcast. But what we've found is that you know the universe seems to be conspiring to support us. You know, we're we're in Marysville, beautiful location, and we just happen to be in a phone meeting before bumping into you, and we just say, "Hey, J- Jackie, loved your talk." Uh, blah blah blah. By the way, we do a podcast. Yeah, would you like to come on? You and you were like, "Yeah, sure." And we're no, like, you basically <laughs> cornered me. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, but honestly, Jackie, it's been such a wonderful experience to hear your your story and your yeah, speech last night. Inspiring. And it's been really special to actually talk to you today. And look, it's just fantastic opportunity for us to spread your message far and wide. And uh, again, thank you so much for being on our show. Well, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.